So how do you achieve financial freedom, gain wealth, and live life on your terms? That is the question, and here's the answer. I'm A.J. Osborne. Welcome to Cash Flow to Freedom. Welcome, everybody, to Cash Flow to Freedom. I'm so excited about today's podcast. We have Paul Moore with us. And, uh, you know, I'm going to let Paul Moore talk about his experience and story, the little thing. I just kind of view Paul as the expert in real estate. I read a book of his a while back. It was, it was actually quite a while. And I was really impressed with his understanding of the fundamentals as well as the technical aspects of real estate, how to get started in it, and particularly as a wealth building machine and just how much of a pro real estate is as a wealth vehicle. And he's been doing this for a long time and has a lot of experience in multiple real estate asset classes. So we couldn't be more excited to have him on. Welcome, Paul. Hey, thanks, AJ. It's great to be here. Great to have you. I think to go ahead and start into it, why don't we just go ahead and have you give them a little bit of your backstory. I want you to tell them about your experience and currently what you're doing and why you're doing it. Okay, fantastic. Well, uh, I got an engineering degree, and that was my first mistake. (laughs) 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 Then I went on to get an MBA, and that was a little smarter. But uh, I went to Ford Motor Company for five years. I loved and still love Ford. But I had an entrepreneurial fire in my heart. And so I always found myself trying to start something on the side, like an oil change shop or a property a tax consulting firm. And so my buddy and I started an HR management firm and we both left Ford. And I was finalist for Entrepreneur of the Year a couple of times in Michigan. He went on to Colorado. We ended up starting multiple businesses together. We sold that to a publicly traded company. And I got into real estate in 2000, which has been a long, fun Right. And I'll tell you what, if I would have known in my 20s, or even when I sold my company at 34, what I know now about the power of commercial real estate to create wealth, I never, ever would have done anything else. I'll tell you that. You know, that's a big statement coming from where you've been and uh, this aspect of being on both sides of it, working for corporate America, entrepreneurship, and investor. You really have kind of seen this all. Yeah, I guess that you could say I really have. You know, the, there's got to be a reason that the Forbes 400 almost all invests in commercial real estate, AJ. And you know the reason, and I know the reason, at least a lot of reasons, but I don't think people know. And I, you know, when I wrote my book, I wrote a book called The Perfect Investment, which was my second of soon to be three books. And when I wrote chapter eight, which I went over the details of the financials and why this works so well, I don't think I even had a deep understanding at that time, even though I put it on paper, of how powerful commercial real estate really is to drive income and more importantly, for the income to drive true wealth. And we can talk about that if you want. Yeah, absolutely. To kind of go back to your backstory, I respect Paul so much. He's been awesome and working with me. We're trying to do some deals together. And I think one of the reasons why is I just see so much from his eyes. Same with me. I was in corporate America, entrepreneurship, started up working in health benefits world, everything like that, and moving over, knowing that I had to make a change as well, moving over into real estate. So I feel like you see the world kind of how I see it and being on both sides of that fence, it really does give someone a really good understanding. If you're trying to chase financial freedom, you're trying to gain wealth, 
there really are two paths you can do. You can entrepreneurship, which is, you know, you're working on scalability and you're trying to get market penetration and competing, or you can go on the investing side, which for me, when I left and went more on starting a real estate business, it was the compounding nature of that equity and cash flow that allowed me to predictably obtain goals. And like what you're saying on that income, that you don't almost realize it until you're down the road of how much of a force it is. Yeah, it's really, really true. You know, I've, I've been talking a little bit about Jeff Bezos lately. You know, he went around, AJ, and he removed the light bulbs from all the vending machines in the Amazon facilities around the U.S. You know, the light bulbs at the top that show, you know, it's Lance, Snacks, or whatever. You know, why would the wealthiest guy, one of the wealthiest guys in the world at least, remove all the light bulbs in these vending machines? It's because he knows the power of a dollar. You know, in Wall Street, on, on stocks, there's a price-to-earnings ratio. So every dollar earned results in a multiple of the stock price, which puts a lot of wealth in Jeff's pocket. And, you know, he knew that there was electricity being burned. There was the cost of a light bulb. There was the maintenance to replace it. And all that was a waste just to advertise the snack company provider. And he realized that the power, you know, of a $1 added up many, many times over is really, really powerful. And, and here's the value of a dollar in commercial real estate. Let's look at it. So if I'm chipping Joanna Gaines Jr. and I can take my house and I can fix this $300,000 house up and add a half a million to it and got 800000 in it, if the neighborhood's a $350,000 neighborhood, I'm probably not going to get the $800,000 out of it because residential real estate is based on comparables or comps. Commercial real estate's completely different. The value is based on a value formula. And it's, of course, we know value is the income divided by the rate of return. And more specifically, the value is the net operating income divided by the cap rate or the capitalization rate. Now, the cap rate is the rate of return that an investor would generally expect for that type of asset in that market at that time. And it used to run about 8 to 10%. And now the cap rates are typically running in the 4 to 7% range. Now, if you can increase the numerator of that formula, and if you can compress the denominator some way, you can dramatically force appreciation and you can even multiply your equity even more because of debt. And if you want, we can go through a quick example. Yeah, let's do because I'm nerding out. This is stuff that that I love and I'm all about and changing the intrinsic value of these assets. So let's let's do a walkthrough so people can really understand. Okay, great. So let's take the dollar first. Let's do $1. So if I can increase my earnings, my revenue by a dollar at a self-storage facility or if I can decrease my costs, either way, I've got a $1 increase in income or net operating income. Now I'm pretty good in math and my mom taught me when I was real young that $1 a month is $12 a year in net operating income. Now, if you take the formula value is net operating income divided by cap rate and you divide by, let's say a 6% cap rate, $12 increase in annual earnings uh, income, I should say, divided by a 0.06 or 6% cap rate results in about $200 increase in value. 
Now wait, $1, $1 resulting in $200 increase in value, but it's even better than that. Because when we use debt or leverage, it multiplies the value of that to the equity even more. And so, for example, if I had a 60% loan to value ratio, you take the $200 and divide it by one minus the LTV. In other words, you divide it by one minus 0.6 or 0.4. And that means the value to the equity is the $200 times effectively 2.5 or effectively the equivalent of adding $500 to the equity. And I can do this probably a little better with a real example, if you like. Yeah, that'd be great. Okay. So let's say we had a self-storage facility and we had some vacant land out front and there or in the back, let's say there was an acre of vacant land. And let's say that for whatever reason, we decide not to put additional facilities there. Now you could either leave it in weeds and just have to mow it, or you could pave that acre, assuming there's a demand for it, put a nice fence around it, a nice gate and lock, and you can actually rent that out for boat and RV storage. Now, one of the operators we, the Wellings Capital Income Fund, invested with recently did this, and I'm going to change the numbers around, but to, to make it real simple here. But let's say the self-storage facility cost $5 million to acquire. And let's say there was 60% loan-to-value debt on it. That means we had $2 million in equity and $3 million in debt. Now, you spend $100,000, and by the way, that's a real number in this case, $100,000 to pave the acre and put the fence around it. Then you start leasing it out for boat and RV and work trailers, et cetera. Now, this guy rented that out, and when it's fully leased, he will be making $10,000 a month from this rented area. Now, $10,000 a month is $120,000 a year. Remember our value formula, 120000 a year divided by a 6% cap rate, 0.06. That's $2 million in additional value he created by spending that $100,000 and doing the marketing necessary to fill this up. $2 million in increased value, that's 40% of the value of the asset. Remember, it was a $5 million asset, but it's better than that because he only has $2 million in equity in it. Well, and there, there's something else too. You just have got to doubled and became four million in equity. It doubled from one change out of the dozens of changes that could be made to this facility. I'm sorry, go ahead, AJ. Well, it's a great example. In fact, I did a YouTube video that walked through all the numbers on this increased value, how you can work it. One of the best parts about this example that you're using is it that addition has virtually no effect on the underlying cost drivers. So if you are paying that 100000 in cash, you have no debt payments that need to be made or serviced, and all of the marketing and all of the management and everything has already built that storage facility. So right. that expansion is literally, that is going straight to your pocket. And so right. your true cost into that is $100,000. Right. Yeah, it's really powerful. And I think the point of that is when you own a commercial real estate facility with expansion possibilities, you own something that is very, very powerful. You talk a lot about this, and this is important for people to understand. The power of commercial assets are how they are valued, as in they are valued off the income generating portion. When I came into real estate, we were trying to purchase real estate assets 
that that's how people viewed them because I viewed them as business operations. And if I could, and I understood that the power of real estate was much bigger than the power of a business. So I did mergers and acquisitions and I'd go buy a business and I could get three times, right? So if I bought a business and I paid off the debt or I could improve the operations of that individual location or whatnot, and I could get three times. But then I found if I could buy a commercial asset and improve the operations and the income of that, it was way more three times on my money that I could improve. And two, a lot of times I can do way bigger improvements. That income formula driver for me, you know, you're talking, let's call it 50 cents a square foot a month over 12 months. I could drive that as far as 80 to a dollar a square foot. That's not just a hundred percent return on my money because of leverage and the six cap rate, which I just didn't have that effect when I was going out and buying individual businesses that I could turn around and sell it three times. I mean, when you put it that way, it's more like a 15 times multiplier instead of a three times, right? Yeah. It's huge. It's even better with debt. It is. It's way better. And And two, it's interesting that I'm getting a 15 times multiplier, but yet I'm in a more secure asset. And that's really what changed my mind was as I was going out and purchasing businesses, I was taking a lot of risk, right? And two, that would go south. I I didn't have control over that revenue. You're either selling that to, that revenue was derived from either clients or let's say selling products, things like that. But I don't have control over the market forces, competition coming in, everything like that. There's just a lot of risk embedded into it. Whereas commercial real estate, it's a safer asset, yet I was getting much, much larger returns on that income. It does start, it made me question, why am I doing it this way, where I can move into another asset class, get higher returns. And I too, I could compound that out at a known rate of return. So, you know, that's for me, the big thing is that you can really expand and build something that can keep going and going and going on with that. Why don't you talk about your ability to expand in commercial? So we talked about the individual one, but using that debt or that income to buy and really compounding that out to grow. I mean, I I just want to kind of just finish out what you just said, because I've heard this analogy, you know, with the Jeff Bezos, the Amazon, the price to earnings ratio, but you just compared it to mergers and acquisitions, which I hadn't really thought about before. So, and I agree that there's generally like a two, three or four to one ratio between the income and the sale price of a company, which is very volatile. It's dependent on the person, the marketing, it depends on the, the contracts, it depends on a you know, the CEO's next scandal might put it to risk. But with real estate, you're saying, so we're saying it's a 15 to one ratio, but am I right in saying with debt, let's just say 66% debt in this case, wouldn't it be like a 45 to one ratio? At least if I take my acquisitions, all of our acquisitions, we've been able to, whether we have or haven't, pull our capital out within the first three years. So the thing about that, if you look at it, it's secured your capital is out of it, theoretically, your returns are infinite because yeah. I have oh, yeah, no money into it. And then two, if you right. if you also take that and do like a CMBS loan, which we do, now you're talking about you're in a stable, secured asset that has no personal guarantees, infinite returns. It really, it's hard to be comparable when you're looking at yeah. the business market. Again, we go back to what we said before, and there's got to be a reason that you know most of the Forbes 400 invests in commercial real estate. And a lot of them grew their wealth there, others perpetuated there, but almost all of them are in it one way or the other. 
But like you said, taking that the idea of the infinite return, if you can pull your equity back out in year two, three, or four, you can now keep that cash flow stream going, but start a new one. And then you do that again and again, and you've basically taken one seed and grown many trees out of it. And it's a very, very powerful way to perpetuate wealth. You know, uh, I had an investor about a year ago say, you know, I hear you saying that the return of principle is so powerful and the returns are so great in your Wellings Income Fund. Well, how great are they? How would it do over 30 years? And I said, well, I don't know, but it'd be really good. <laughs> and uh, that was really analytical, wasn't it? But seriously, I went, I went away from that call and thought, you know, I need to know the answer to this. So I went and set up a spreadsheet and I had to keep redoing it because I couldn't, I thought it couldn't have been right. But AJ, the tax efficiency is another reason the yes. Forbes 400 loves commercial mm-hmm. real estate. We can talk about that in a few minutes. There's yeah, about 12 different tax saving strategies we can use as commercial real estate investors. But setting that aside for a moment, if you can do these transactions with virtually no tax, which is doable, I, mm-hmm. I can show you that it is doable. And you know, we do this. it. Yep. It's possible to turn $100,000 as long as you reinvest the distributions and the proceeds all along the way, and then you do really well, it's possible to turn $100,000 into about $5 million over 30 years. And like I said, my spreadsheet showed this, but I couldn't believe it. But you know what? I've checked it with a number of people. It's true. It was about $3.5 million if you pay the capital gains tax at every transaction and about $5 million or more if you don't. From $100,000. Yeah, we took $260,000 and turned it into $5 million in four years. And I think I actually have a video or something outlining how we did that through 1031 exchanges and other things. And we got to really get... So this tax, this tax portion is important because when we were running our other businesses and when I'm getting paid from consulting fees from clients and everything like that, when I reinvested and allocated my money in... And this is one of the fundamental reasons why I changed our business model into commercial real estate was because when I invested my capital, so let's say once again, back to this mergers and acquisition, I took my capital out, I went out and I bought another business, right? At the revenues, I already lost 35% return immediately. It was gone. Right. So that investment, so if I took my money out and I went and even bought a building or whatever it may be from that original, from my business and from my consulting income, right? I already lost 75% return. Now, reverse that on to my real estate business. That capital that I take out and I put back in, first of all, using through leverage, I can do that at zero, no loss whatsoever. And I can take that and reinvest in but also due to depreciation, I can do accelerated depreciation and I can roll that in or a 1031 exchange in, and a dollar really equals a dollar. And that's, you know, I couldn't compound my returns before because a dollar wasn't a dollar. I was investing a dollar, but I'd already lost 35 cents because the tax man had already taken it out. So I'm sitting there, okay, how many years do I have just to make a dollar back? Well, right. the difference in compounding, if you're using an actual dollar and you don't start out at 35 cents, is massive. It's absolutely true. And if you, you know, if you take a penny that's taxed every day and double it every day for 30 years and you tax it versus non-tax, the difference is insane. It's hard to believe, but it's, you can do the math. It's true. And this sets you up. I view people when you're starting out and 
the principle of investing in real estate is, is you're trying to create a method, or we talk about it, making an investment vehicle that will compound these returns for you at a low tax rate at a high amount, right? You know, and this is something Paul does does really good. Because I understand in my case, some people may look at it and they're like, listen, I either don't want to spend all the time and capital risk, everything that I have, because I've had to go out and do it and build it myself, find third-party management. Whereas Paul, can kind of explain, Paul, real quick, how you invest. Because they've heard how I invest, because I'm all yeah. hands-on, my own money, everything like that. You do it yeah. very differently. Yeah, you know, I've been involved in bigger pockets for a couple of years, as I know you've been involved on as well, AJ. And, you know, I talked to these people. I, I just got off a podcast with an orthodontist who was trying to spend every waking hour on the side trying to find a house to flip. And he's hammering and painting on his vacation and dealing with tenants between appointments. And, you know, I say to guys like that, hey, look, why work harder than you need to to make less than you could? Because you could invest passively with an expert and you could make as much or more money, get the same tax benefits because you're getting a K-1, you're getting direct ownership uh, piece of these assets. And I realized when we made a transition a couple of years ago, actually from multifamily out to self-storage in mobile home parks as well, I realized I can't be an expert in everything. And, you know, I read Howard Marks, Mastering the Market Cycles, and realized there's going to be cycles, you know, multifamily's up through the roof right now, but someday self-storage will be and someday mobile home parks will be. And I need to be ready to pivot. And I can't be an expert in everything. And I can't have a team that has done all these deals over decades like these best-in-class operators are. So I decided it would be better for Wellings Capital to actually be a capital raiser, raise capital for these deals that these best-in-class operators are doing. And I figured they're going to make quite an outsized return compared to an average operator and certainly compared to my operations team. And so we would make enough additional money to way more than cover our fees. And that's been proving true. So, Wellings so Paul, in- you're the Warren Buffett of real estate. You know, thank you for saying that. I'm glad <laughs> someone finally recognized it. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, we, what we're doing is just like Buffett. I just finished the Snowball, his biography, the other day. Amazing, and, you know, what he did is he, he invests in great teams with great products in great locations, and he gives them money to grow. And that's what we want to do. I talk a lot, and this is really important, because when you're building your wealth vehicle or you're looking at a wealth vehicle, it doesn't mean you have to drive it, right? You can right. be a passenger. And for a lot of people, that is an amazing way that we have structured to today to where we can participate in the wealth creation process where some people may think and they may look at this and go, I I can never do this. I don't either don't have the time, I don't have the interest or whatever it may be. And then they say, so what's my option? Just if, if I decide not to do this, does that mean I just can't? I don't get to participate in the economic growth of our nation or whatever it may be. My answer is no, just because your wealth vehicle doesn't mean you have to be a driver. And Paul, that's essentially what you do. You're out, you're finding the best drivers and you're allowing people to jump in the car with them during, through this wealth creation process. Absolutely. That's what we're working on doing. And we're really excited about it right now. We have a Wellings income fund, which is income first and appreciation as a cherry on the Sunday. 
We're targeting 15% total annual returns or more there. And then we have a growth fund, which is all about steep value adds, ground up development. And that is targeting 19% total annual return, but there are no ongoing distributions planned in that fund. I want to talk to you real quick about these funds because you have an advantage to where you do get a cherry pick, right? So you can look at several operators, find the best deals that you believe are good for you and your investors. And this also allows you, though, to be nimble moving forward. So changes in the economy allow you to really kind of change and design. So for example, comparative to me, like I have the infrastructure built to manage facilities, own and run storage facility, like that's a business, right? If the economy changes, that doesn't mean that changes what I do. I still do that, right? You really do have the flexibility though, to do what's best for your investors and pick and choose. How do you see the future? So when you're looking here in the next five years, we're at an interesting time in the economy cycle. What are you telling the people that you're really out picking investments and you're, you're being the forefront from, and they're looking to you for guidance? What are you telling them about the future and what are you looking for? You know, so after reading Howard Marks and Warren Buffett and others, I realized that it would be pretty unwise for me to try to predict when the market's going to turn down because those guys, they say there's definitely going to be an upturn and a downturn and a cycle because there's always human psychology involved, but we don't know when and we don't know the severity of it. So I've tried to pull back and start saying that as well, that I don't know when. And I tell you, I mean, I was convinced we were at the, in the ninth inning in 2014 in multifamily. Yet anybody who invested in 2014 to now 2019 has made an enormous profit just from cap rate compression, if not value add as well. And so it is really hard to predict. I do believe being a long-term holder or at least being positioned to potentially be a long-term holder is one great strategy because what can happen, you're going to have to follow me on this, listeners, is as the cap rate releases or expands and the interest rate expands, the price of the asset is going to go down. But what typically happens during that period is there's some inflation and the rents and therefore the income goes up. And so if the income goes up and the cap rate goes up with it, the value of the asset might stay relatively the same. But the great news is if you're a long-term holder, that cap rate is going to compress again. In fact, in the last recession, the cap rate compressed again rather quickly after a quick deflation. But what happens is typically the income does not go back down. And so you've got income which is stable or continuing to rise while cap rate compresses. And again, for listeners, cap rate compression means increased value or increased price, if you will, because that's the denominator. And so Long-term holders can be positioned to take advantage of that, and they can also be positioned to take advantage of some of the bad deals that were bought by overzealous buyers at this point in the economy. And you and I have talked about this, AJ. You know, there are people who are doing ground-up self-storage right now or buying self-storage way too high, and we are going to be in a position to scoop those up when the economy turns. Absolutely. I love that's how... I view too. I view the deal as more important than anything else because a good deal today will be a great deal tomorrow and the next year. And what the economy does, 
that's out of my control. And so I know what our people get in trouble is they do a deal that's going to be a good deal in the future. Right. Yeah. That's, that's where, that's where I try to avoid. I try to do a deal that's good today because if it's good today, then what happens to the economy, I have room to buffer and it's a good deal. I'll I'll be fine. Right. I'm, I get paid to own that asset. And then in the future, that just means it'll be a great deal. Well, Paul, we have to jump off here uh, in just a minute. Um, about how much time do we got left for you? I've got about 14 minutes. Okay, perfect. Good, good, good. Because I didn't want to lose the time. Now, you have transitioned over from commercial family to self-storage. And if you could kind of walk people through, they obviously hear a lot about self-storage from me, the value add, everything like that. Could you walk through the pros and the cons of each? And when deciding which real estate asset you're trying to invest in, what do you look for? And as an individual deciding, okay, I'm going to get into this real estate world, right? Where do you start? And what are the pros and cons to the different asset classes? For time's sake, I'll just buzz through this really quickly. Multifamily has an incredibly low default rate, but so does self-storage. Multifamily has demographics. You can look down the line for many years and see you know, Gen Z, the people behind the millennials, millennials are 80 million strong. Baby boomers are 77 million strong. But Gen Z is just as large as the millennials. And so it looks like with massive student debt, with a propensity for millennials and probably Gen Z to want to be flexible and not be tied down to a seemingly overpriced contract on a home that when they might have new friends or new opportunities across town or across the country next year, it seems like the demographics and the long-term outlook on apartments are very strong. There's also the immigration factor. Immigrants rent more often and for longer than people who originated in the U.S. And so apartments have a very good outlook for a very long time. The problem with apartments is they're highly overpriced right now. And there are about seven reasons for that. I'm going to buzz through them very quickly. Number one, there's a record amount of international money coming in. Some Chinese investors have said because of the exchange rate, they'd be willing to live with a zero cap rate. How can we compete with a zero cap rate? Tell me, AJ. Yeah. Uh, So that's number one. Number two, there's institutional money that used to be limited to Boston and LA and New York and San Francisco, it's now competing with us in Boise and Omaha and Lexington. And so that institutional money is driving the prices higher and making it harder to compete for most of us. Number three, there's a record amount of self-directed IRA money coming in. Number four, the Tax Reform Act. You know, love him or hate him, the uh, commercial real estate investor in the Oval Office has helped by changing the tax laws. Of course, Congress had a big role in that and making it even more advantageous than ever to invest in commercial real estate. Next, you've got 1031 money coming in at record levels. You've got 1031 exchange money And people with 1031 exchanges, especially those in high-tax states like California, are saying, I'd rather overpay by 15% than give the government 20 or 30% of this money. And so they're willing to overpay. That's very hard to compete with. Number five, there's the Nuru, maybe I'm number six now, the Nuru impact. Now, I'm trying to coin a phrase here, and I'm hoping your podcast will help (laughs) me do that. The Nuru impact is new gurus. That's people who 
weren't even investing in real estate in the last recession who are now the gurus of this big bull run. And they're telling us to go ahead and overpay. And it's okay to overpay. And number seven is the new ruse who are actually wolves in sheep's clothing. And that's people who are going to make money from investors, whether the deal goes well or not. They're people who make money from brokerage commissions, acquisition fees, asset management fees, and their interests aren't aligned with investors. And they know that and they're intentionally misleading people. We could make an entire podcast just on that. Let's do that. Yes, we need to. But so those are seven reasons that commercial real estate, but specifically multifamily, is overheated. Now, self storage has the disadvantage that it can be built more quickly and more easily than multifamily. And sometimes a market can get overheated. I've heard that there are places in Nashville, Charlotte, maybe Boise, where there is more self storage going up then there is demand. And so that is the major disadvantage to self-storage. And the reason I didn't build ground up 20 years ago when I thought about it, and I would end up being one of those mom and pop operators, by the way. But speaking of mom and pop operators, the biggest advantage to self-storage is the fragmented market. Now there are mom and pop operators. There are about 53 to 55,000 self-storage facilities in the U.S., about 35 to 40,000 are run by independent or mom and pop operators. They don't know how or care to maximize income. They don't do a lot of marketing. And acquiring these facilities in the path of progress can be a significant advantage to a professional operator who can add U-Haul or Penske trucks, who can add a beautiful showroom with point of sale items, who can add climate control facilities, who can add you know, admin fees and late fees, and who will increase the rent based on the actual renter's target profile. There's all kinds of things that can be done to increase value. And so buying from a mom and pop, increasing the value, and then on the top of that, selling to a REIT, which allows potentially a compressed cap rate, can be a massive massive value driver. And of course, I know that you've done this, AJ. In fact, you're my prime example I use in a lot of other podcasts of doing this really well. Now, one of the things I love about self-storage as well is that the tenants are really, really sticky. They're not going to leave for a rent increase that multifamily would would drive people crazy. So in multifamily, if I'm charging you a thousand a month for an apartment, I raise the rent by 6%, you might leave rather than pay that $720 a year, $60 a month. But if I'm charging you a hundred a month for a storage unit and I raise the rent by 6%, you're probably not going to take a Saturday, get your friends, rent a truck and move all your junk, I mean treasures, down the street to another facility just to save $6 a month, especially in the heat of summer or in the middle of the uh, holiday season, which is a lot of times when the rents are raised. Now, there's all kinds of other things that I love about self-storage, but I think we're running out of time here. So those are a couple ideas I have. 
That's awesome. I appreciate your insight and your views, especially right now. And you're right, as markets change, I would obviously, everyone knows I'm biased with self-storage, but one of the nice things about self-storage is the market for individuals to get into. You talk about mom and pops, things like that. There's a much larger market, which I think for beginner investors, not even beginner investors, just for anybody to get into, there is more opportunity in general for you to get into it without being on the just these absolute razor thin returns that's being compressed down so low. Right. Anyways, I, I know, Paul, you got to go. Thank you so much for being on our podcast. You are just an absolute wealth of knowledge in the real estate space. I would suggest everyone, Paul, where can they go to find you? They can find us at wellingscapital.com. That's W-E-L-L-I-N-G-S, capital, C-A-P-I-T-A-L, wellingscapital.com. And uh, they can reach out to us there. Perfect. We'll put all the information in the show notes as well. Thanks, Paul, for being on. And we hope to have you again. Okay. And thanks. I should also mention we have a podcast called How to Lose Money. And you were one of our favorite guests on there. Why, thank you. That's a great podcast anyone should listen to. It teaches you definitely what not to do. And then if you do it, how to turn it around. Thanks, AJ. It's been great. Appreciate it. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of Cashflow to Freedom. Be sure to subscribe to us for more and feel free to check us out at Cashflow with the number 2freedom.com or find us on Instagram and Facebook. And also, if you could leave us a good review, that would really help us continue to build out our content and our community. Thank you so much.